Welcome everyone to Historically Haunted. I'm your dyslexic host, Ariel, and in this podcast, we will embark on a journey together where the past whispers its secrets into the present. In each episode, I'll dust off the history books and bring you spine-tingling stories of ghostly apparitions that haunt historic landmarks, along with stories of monstrous moments and unexplainable events that have shaped our world. So, whether you're a history buff who enjoys a spooky story or a paranormal enthusiast with a love for history, prepare to embark on a journey through a historically haunted past, because to understand the ghosts, we must first understand the history. and welcome back to Historically Haunted. It is officially spooky season and I am so excited. Today is the first of my three-part Halloween series and this episode is about the Shanghai tunnels found in Portland, Oregon. My other two Halloween episodes that will come out a little later in October are about Leap Castle and the Cecil Hotel. I can't wait to get this episode started, but first I have a little bit of housekeeping. The month of October is going to be a really crazy one for me this year because I have so many things planned so please be patient with me as I go through this very crazy month. I will be attending my first ever um, Halloween Horror Nights in Orlando, and I will also be going to Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party for my first time, and I will be doing some other fall-themed activities in October as well, and I will be vlogging my entire experience over on my other YouTube channel. Um, It's going to be a first-timer's perspective of HHN and Mickey's Not-So-Scary Party, so if you would like that kind of thing, please go check out my other YouTube channel Travel Spin and I will have a link to that down below. I have also posted my first few blog posts over on my website historicallyhauntedpodcast.com. My first blog post is about ADHD tips that I have learned over the years and I wanted to share them with everyone and the other is about the history of Halloween music. From the start of my show I wanted a website that would showcase helpful tips and tricks for others struggling with ADHD and dyslexia along with exploring new history and haunted places and fun little quirky things like the history of music. Please head on over to my website to check them both out. And I added a fun Spotify Halloween playlist that I created to go along with my history of music posts to celebrate the Halloween season. The playlist is embedded at the bottom of that blog post. And I have a link to my blog posts on my website down below in the show notes. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my monthly newsletter. It is another way to keep up with the show. And I share fun history facts and other little things and occasionally a free digital download and stuff like that. I have gotten some more questions about shirts and they are definitely coming. Thank you so much to everyone who reached out to me and tried to help me find a new printing company to use. I was able to find a local print shop in my area and I've decided to use them from now on. So um, I'm working with Allison from A Zambina Designs to come up with a new design for this shirt that I will be selling. These new shirts will be screen printed and really good quality and I cannot wait to show them to all of you when they're done. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and Facebook because that's where I will post pictures of them so that way you guys will know what to expect when I get them in stock. And as always, I wanted to give a huge thank you to my Patreons. You guys are the reason that I am able to keep this show going. Because of my Patreons, I have been able to launch my website, 
get a new cute ghost mascot for our show, get new logo artwork, upgrade my podcasting equipment, pay for my podcasting host fees, and pay for the rights to use every sound effect and background music that you hear on my show. So thank you guys again so much. If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon and helping support the show, you can check out my link to the page down below. For just a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make when I have extra time, sneak peeks on current projects, and a thank you card with a logo sticker in the mail after your first monthly payment. I have a link to that page down below if you'd like to check that out. And leaving a written review on iTunes or a starred review on Spotify is a quick and free way to help support the show. The more reviews I receive, it will help the show pop up when other people are searching for a paranormal podcast to try. And one more thing before we start, I am fighting a really bad sore throat. I don't think I'm sick or anything because I have no other symptoms other than a bad sore throat. I think it's just bad allergies. I've done all the things. I've drank in the tea. I did the honey, the whole medication. I've done it all, the, you know, everything I can think of, and it's still here. So my voice might sound a little tired. It's not that I'm unenthusiastic for this Halloween episode. I'm very excited, but I might not be as I usually sound all the time because I'm trying to rest my voice. I have a lot to get through this month, and I've got more episodes to record, so I'm just trying to fight through whatever this is so that way I can get this episode out to you as quickly as possible. Okay, now that all the housekeeping is out of the way, let's get this first of three Halloween episodes started. If you would like to learn more about today's location, I encourage you to go down to the bottom of my show notes for all of my sources. Here, you can find even more information and history than I had time to cover in today's episode. And just a quick reminder that my show might not be suitable for all audiences. I often cover gory, disturbing, sensitive, and adult topics. And while the ghost stories I tell might be scary, sometimes the true history is more frightening than the paranormal claims. Listener's discretion is advised. Among the hustle and bustle of modern-day Portland, Oregon, it can be hard to wrap your head around the fact that this was once a rough-and-tumble port town. Today, Portland has a population of 652,503, and it's surrounded by skyscrapers, but also surrounded by a beautiful forest. Most people who visit spend so much time looking up that they don't often look around and notice the older historical buildings that are around them. The average visitor might not give much thought to the history that surrounds them or what lurks beneath their feet. Today, Portland is a beautiful and sustainable city, full of bike paths, coffee shops, art districts, trendy restaurants, and bookstores, all while surrounded by national forests. It would be hard to imagine that under the city lies a dark chapter of Portland's history. Tonight, we will be entering the city's seedy underbelly of the old crime world. Before we take the plunge, let's take a look at Portland's history to understand why the most haunted spots in the city is in what people call the Shanghai Tunnels. Before European settlers moved in, the land was inhabited by 50 different indigenous tribes who lived in the area. The larger of these tribes included the Nez Pierce, Klamath, 
Chinook, Paiute, Molala, and the Cayuse people. They lived in cedar plank houses, built dugout canoes, and used the waterways for transportation. Wild grizzlies, wolves, panthers, cougars, and deer roamed freely, and the vast rivers and lakes provided an abundance of fish perfect for feeding the people who lived nearby. Redwood forests were full of the largest trees on earth, stretching over 380 feet tall and 18 feet wide. By the 1500s, European explorers saw the coastline of Oregon from their ships during various surveying expeditions, but they did not lay anchor. One of the more famous explorers who spotted the coastline was Sir Francis Drake. In 1792, an American explorer named Captain Robert Gray found the Columbia River and he named it after his ship, the Columbia. In 1803, the Lewis and Clark expedition set off to chart new territory that the U.S. had just gained from the Louisiana Purchase. With the help of Sacagawea as their guide, they went beyond the land that was purchased and reached the Pacific Ocean near the mouth of the Columbia River in Oregon in 1805. Over the next few decades, more U.S. and Great Britain explorers, along with fur trappers, came to the Oregon Territory. The population of Americans out west exploded thanks to Manifest Destiny. Manifest Destiny was a 19th century belief among Americans that they were destined to expand and settle across the entire North American continent. It fueled westward expansion, colonization, and conflicts with indigenous peoples. Politicians used this ideology to justify claiming land from people that lived there first because they believed that they were acting out a divine mission. To keep that Manifest Destiny train going, the Oregon Trail was established in the 1840s, and it brought hundreds of thousands of Americans out west, many of them deciding to stay in Oregon. The area that is now Portland, Oregon, was known to trappers and nearby settlers as the Clearing. This clearing was a popular landing point for people traveling on the Willamette River between Oregon City and Fort Vancouver. Local indigenous tribes had already been using this site for centuries before European settlers arrived. Settlers who lived in the area found the river to be vital for their economy. They used ships to transfer their crops and goods, and over time, small towns began springing up around the water's edge, and the industry began to flourish. They worked to make the river deeper so that they could use larger paddle-wheeled steamships. The landing area that was known as the Clearing was located near where the Willamette River joined the larger Columbia River, and the Columbia River led to the Pacific Ocean. This soon proved to be an important access point to the ocean from Portland so that they could ship their goods down to San Francisco. In 1843, business partners William Overton and Aza Lovejoy saw a huge opportunity. They knew that soon this would become a booming port town full of opportunities to make a fortune, and they acted quickly, putting in a claim for the land on the west bank of the Willamette River. A few years later, William sold his share to Francis W. Pettigrove. The town started to grow rapidly, and they needed to pick a name. Pettigrove grew up in Portland, Maine, and Lovejoy was from Boston, Massachusetts. Each man wanted to name this new town after their own personal hometowns, and they decided to settle this dispute with a coin toss. After flipping a penny, Pettigrove won, and the town was named Portland. Now, before I go any further, it is important to talk about the Chinese and Japanese influence that Portland has. Some of the earliest Chinese and Japanese immigrants arrived in Portland between 1850 and 1890. Many of these men worked as contract laborers for wealthy elites, mining, and railroad companies. They often got the lowest end jobs for the lowest wages. Chinese and Japanese immigrants helped build much of the American railroads, cities, 
cities and gold mine shafts across the country. While they help build and expand America, they are largely left out of our history books and their importance is vastly underrepresented. They worked dangerous jobs, digging out tunnel systems for trains, blasting cliff rocks with dynamite while being suspended thousands of feet in the air in wicker baskets. They also endured horrid working conditions, faced discrimination, and were forced to live in segregated districts and cities and work camps. This is why we still have Chinatowns and Japan towns in big cities today. It's left over from discrimination when people were confined to these districts and segregated, not allowed to live anywhere else. I just wanted to bring this up to have this in the back of your mind playing while we talk about Portland, Oregon, because there's so much lost history that was never written down, and there's a lot of history there that is just oral storytelling given to family members throughout the generations. So please just keep that in mind as we go over the rest of the history. As the town rapidly grew, people often referred to it as Stumptown due to the many stumps that were left behind from forest clearings. The town had grown from a few buildings to a boom town. Portland became the main port city of the Pacific Northwest during most of the 19th century. In the 1850s, when the California gold rush was at its peak, there was a big market for the selling of Oregon wheat and lumber. Most of these products passed through Portland, which were then transferred onto ships headed for San Francisco. By the late 1800s, Portland had gained quite a reputation. Port towns were like mining towns, only crazier. Portland was considered one of the most dangerous ports in the world. As local police tried to crack down on illegal activity, many businesses simply went underground, literally. Throughout Portland's historic districts lie basements with a tunnel system that link many businesses together. While the town was being built, tunnels were dug under many of these new buildings. These tunnels were dug by Chinese workers, and many of these tunnels connect Portland's Chinatown to the docks. This tunnel system stretched about five miles, and they were originally used as a means to transport goods from the docks so that they could be unloaded directly under the various hotels and restaurants in town. Over time, these tunnels were forgotten, and many illegal businesses used these tunnel systems as a means to hide from local police. In these tunnels, you could find things like speakeasies, brothels, and opium dens. But the most feared of all was the illegal practice of shanghaiing. The term Shanghai or Shanghaiing, also known as crimping, is an old term for the kidnapping of sailors and forcing them into enslavement to work on ships. Men were often lured away from their crew with the promise of a good time. These men were then drugged while they drank, and they would wake up out at sea and be given the option to either become a slave on the ship or be thrown overboard. This practice became popular when men lost their interest in sailing, especially during the gold rush. The term Shanghai was named after the port city of Shanghai, China. To understand more about this, we have to go back in time a little bit and take a slight pivot. After Great Britain lost the Revolutionary War, they were not only down 13 colonies in America, 
America, but they also depleted their treasury. They needed a quick way to make money, so they searched for new trading partners to kickstart their economy again. Great Britain decided that China would be a good trading partner. At first, their new trading contract was beneficial for both countries. China exported things like tea, silk, and porcelain, while Great Britain would pay for it in silver. This worked for a while until Great Britain realized that they were not making enough money off of the goods being sent in from China compared to how much they were paying China for their goods. Great Britain decided that they needed something to counter trade with, so they began shipping opium into China with hopes that their people would get hooked on it. Opium is a highly addictive drug that gripped the late 18th and early 19th centuries. When opium proved popular, Great Britain began cultivating it in their controlled province of Bengal, India, causing the trade and the use of the drug to skyrocket. By the early 19th century, opium became an addiction crisis, causing a major social and economic disruption in China. The Chinese government put a ban on both the production and importation of opium, and by 1813, smoking opium was outlawed in China. But as we all know, people who like making money will not listen to laws, so the illegal opium trade was still high, and things like opium dens were still popular until the 1830s. In 1836, the Chinese government began lying down harsher punishments by closing all known opium dens and imprisoning Chinese dealers, many of whom were executed. Tensions began to run high between Great Britain and China. China blamed the British for the opium crisis and the two sides fought in what is known as the Opium Wars. I don't have time to get into all of this today, so please go down to my sources linked down below for more information on this. While the two governments were fighting about what to do, the drug runners and crime bosses did not care much about what they did. They would always continue to run illegal operations, but the main thing that the governments were getting in the way of was sailors. The illegal crime bosses needed products moved in a timely manner, and before the government crackdowns, sailors knew that the job was hard with low pay, in horrid working conditions, and the death rate was really high, so not many men wanted to work on these ships. After the government cracked down on shipments of opium and other illegal goods, they could no longer advertise for sailors openly, so they began kidnapping men and forcing them into slavery. One of the most notorious ports in the world at this time was Shanghai, China. It was also the top port for the illegal opium trade. Because of this, the name of kidnapping sailors was dubbed Shanghai or Shanghai, and this was a common thing that happened in ports worldwide. Okay, now that we have a background knowledge of what Shanghai is, let's return back to Portland, Oregon. So, during the late 1800s, Portland was a dangerous place. With the opium trade hitting its peak, so did the threat of being Shanghai. Local police began to crack down on crime, so the underground tunnels became a perfect solution. And when I say police began cracking down on crime, there was a lot of corruption in the police department as well. So, it's thought that the police also knew this was going on, so they were just surface, you know, making it look like they were taking care of business on the top, but really in the tunnels, they didn't care what happened down there. The tunnels became a hub of secret activity, and many of these underground clubs were actually designed to kidnap men. Ship captains would hire local thugs, known as crimps, to lure men away from their crew. 
often taking them to a hidden brothel or a saloon. Many sailors visiting didn't even know these tunnels existed, making kidnapping attempts from above easy. Some of the underground rooms were turned into holding cells. While sailors were drinking in the above saloons, the Shanghaiers got to work, drugging their drinks, and then when they least expected it, a trap door would open up below them. The men would then fall onto a mattress below, where more men were waiting for them. These captured sailors would then have their shoes removed and be shoved into a small holding cell. The reason they removed their shoes was because a large area around the door was full of broken glass. If anyone was able to break out and try to run, the crimps would be able to find them by following the traces of blood. The men then would pass out inside the holding cell and wake up on a slave ship already out at sea. Shanghaiers would be paid $50 per kidnapped man, so it was a really high-paying yet illegal business. By the 1850s and 60s, Portland, Oregon became known as the Shanghai capital of the world, with anywhere between 1,500 and 3,000 people being captured each year. And it was not just men who had to be careful. These tunnels were also home to another profitable yet illegal trade known as white slavery. Prostitution was popular in Portland, with many brothels set up in a district known as the Whitechapel District, and they named this after the Whitechapel waterfront district in London where the Jack Ripper murders happened. So, you know, keep it classy, Portland. This area was located down by the docks and it was a good hiding place for people from the city who didn't want people to see them with a lady of the night. While most people living in Victorian times felt that prostitution was immoral, there was no citywide crackdown until the early 1900s. But of course, this did not stop some higher-end clients from getting what they wanted without being seen by the public view. This is why the use of sex slaves were a top moneymaker. Women would be kidnapped off the street and held in the city's tunnels for psychological conditioning before being sold. The term white slavery was a posh term for human trafficking in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And this stuff is horrible to think about, but this was the reality for many men and women in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Opium dens were also set up in rooms under the city. By the end of the 19th century, railroads became a major player in transporting supplies and goods, slowing down port town operations around the globe. People also began taking trains and using other means of transportation to get to other cities. Because of this, the shipping industry slowed exponentially. At the turn of the century, the people of Portland wanted to rid themselves of the filthy port city reputation. So Portland decided to hold a World's Fair in 1905, giving the city officials exactly what they were looking for, good publicity. They cleaned up the city and made it, as we would say today, camera ready for thousands of visitors. Many newspapers and magazines of the day applauded the city's work in creating a clean and modern city from what was once considered a scummy port town. By the 1920s, large sailing ships fell to the much faster and more luxurious steam-powered ships and ocean liners. These new ships needed fewer crew members and were relatively safer than their predecessors. This helped the rapid decline of Shanghai until eventually it died out. When Prohibition became law in 1919, the tunnels were quickly repurposed to hold speakeasies. Everyone still wanted alcohol after that law was created, so this became a fast and much easier way to make money. After 
Prohibition ended in 1932, the tunnels were never really used the same way again, although illegal fight clubs and gambling halls were still held in some of the basements. The use of the whole tunnel system became a thing of the past. During World War II, Portland found itself going back to its roots as an important port city, but this time it was for the war effort. With the rapid expansion of military bases, supplies were vital for the war effort. The Navy housed a fleet of blimps here to patrol the Pacific coastline. Portland became an important link between shipping food and supplies overseas. The need for workers was high and this created a population boom with 100,000 people moving to the Portland area to work for the war effort. The promise of new jobs attracted many African Americans who also moved to the area around this time. Many became permanent residents and they worked to build political influences, strengthen civil rights organizations like the NAACP, and open new businesses of their own. However, they were met with discrimination from the white residents of the city. Discrimination was also a problem in Portland's Chinatown and Japantown, and this is still a problem that still persists to this day. The 40s and 50s saw yet another round of organized crime, as did many large cities of this era. While Al Capone had Chicago, a man named Jim Purcell had Portland. He had his fingers in everything. Not only was he running moonshine and drugs, but he was also believed to have shot a security guard in Arizona. He worked with his brother and ran prostitution rings, and he collected money from local businesses for protection. That's in quotes. It's basically when businesses just pay up to the gangster who owns the block, and it's just like, we won't mess with you, and we'll protect your business as long as you pay me this fee. And you know, if you don't pay them, then you will probably get your business shut down or worse, they will never find you again. Jim also ran gambling rackets and owned several nightclubs that obviously did illegal activity in the back rooms. Jim had the police in his back pocket and he even was known for bribing the mayor. I found in the records that he went to trial, I think a few times, it was actually pretty hard to tell and I think I know why. He went to trial a couple of times and each time he was acquitted, even though they had lots of evidence against him. So, I mean, you know, wonder how that happened. He definitely paid somebody off and that's why there are not very many good records as to why he even went to trial in the first place. Okay, we're going to be skipping ahead here because when the internet became popular in the late 90s and early 2000s, people online saw that Portland looked beautiful. It was a modern city that was surrounded by a natural forest and that would be enticing to uh, pretty much anyone. So this caused yet another population boom of adults in their young 20s and early 30s. And big companies were also located in Portland, which this was the perfect combo. Companies like Doc Martens, Nike, Whedon, Plus Kennedy, and Adidas were were all set up in this city. And a few startup companies focused on graphic design and early internet industries were also being set up. So this was a great place for creative people to work. And at this time, the rent was really cheap too, so that definitely helped. In the 90s, Portland saw a big uptick in artists and eco-friendly thinkers. Portland has seen many social and economic shifts in its history. It has seen major protests throughout its history as well, done by unions and those who call for social justice. Today, the city is surrounded by trendy coffee shops, craft breweries, art districts, restaurants, shops, independent art galleries, bike paths, and hiking trails. In 2003, Keep 
Keep Portland Weird became the city's unofficial motto. Ever since the tunnel stopped being used, they have gained quite a haunted reputation. Before we start talking about the ghosts, I have to ask the question, is there any truth to the stories of illegal crime in Shanghai? Some people think that the stories of these tunnels are simply myth or urban legend that were created in the mid-70s to make a quick buck from paranormal enthusiasts by creating a roadside attraction. I also ran into a few articles calling this a complete myth, claiming that there is zero historical evidence to support the claims of any Shanghai. However, this sort of thing really did happen worldwide, and let me remind all of you that this was a completely illegal thing to do, so it's not like they would have it written it all down for historic record. Being from California, I also know for a fact that this happened in San Francisco a lot, and I bet you 10 bucks this was happening in Portland. And if you remember from my Old Town Sacramento episode, I talked about their tunnel system and the illegal practices that went on down there. So this kind of underground crime was definitely a thing back then in the bigger cities and in boom towns. I also found a video from one of my favorite YouTubers, History Tea Time, and the video is titled Portland Shanghai Tunnels. I discovered this when I was looking for history of the tunnels and I clicked on it thinking, oh cool, I'll just get her take on it. But I was shocked to hear in the beginning that she explained that her family thinks that her uncle Michael was shanghai in Portland in the 1890s. She also said that most old Portland families have a story of a Shanghai relative. I also came across many of these stories in my research. So with so many stories, I'm a little confused as to why people today think that this didn't happen. Sometimes I think that history is so shocking that people can't let their minds believe that it happened or wrap their mind around it at all, especially when there is no real records or documentation. So it's easy to say that, oh, this never happened and move on about their day. But I personally think that this is unfair to the men and women who had their lives stolen away. Also, I feel like outsiders don't really know what went on. It's kind of one of those things that the locals knew what was happening, but people from the outside did not type of things. That's why I think old families that are still around today understand that this did happen and someone who just moved in or showed up to write about it one day think that this is all legend and nothing more. Legend or not, since these tunnels emptied, many employees of various businesses have claimed to hear and see some strange things down in the tunnels and various basements. If the tunnels were really used for these types of crimes, then you can imagine how many people died down there. Drug overdoses, diseases, and starvation would have been common. They also would have been a great place for warring gangsters to settle their differences with bats and guns. The ghost stories I will cover in this episode do not have much historical evidence to back them up, but they are still really interesting and a great collection of spooky stories and legends from people who have been down in the tunnels and basements as well as from buildings that are connected to one another via the tunnel system. Something to keep in mind before we start, these tunnels are not large and rounded like subway tunnels or big mining shafts that you would see in a Hollywood movie. These are narrow passageways that connect the businesses of the old town to the docks, and some of them are now sealed off. So there are not very many access points as there were in the 1800s. Because of this, there will be a lot of jumping around. So just keep that in mind as we discuss the hauntings. I will first start with one of the more famous ghosts, and her name is Nina.
Today, the restaurant Old Town Pizza is located in what was once the lobby of the Merchant Hotel. When this hotel was in operation in the early 1900s, a woman named Nina was forced to work as a sex slave in the hotel. She was also known for seeing many upper-end clients. These clients were politicians and other high-end officials who did not like their private information being spread around town. They also did not want their wives to find out what they were doing on the side. One day, Nina was returning to the hotel after meeting one of those higher-end clients, and a group of local missionaries approached her and convinced her to tell them who she was working for. In return, they promised to offer Nina and her young daughter, who lived with her in the hotel, a place to stay, and they promised that they would get them both out of town to start over. For a few weeks, Nina secretly fed them information, but one day she didn't attend her scheduled meeting with the monks. Sadly, her body was found at the bottom of the elevator shaft later that day. There are a few theories as to what happened to her. Some think that her pimp killed her after he discovered that she was feeding information to outside sources. Another theory is that an irate high-end customer found out what she had done, and in a fit of rage and panic, he threw her down the elevator shaft. What the truth is, we will never know, and I also could not find out if this story was true or not. It's going to be like this for a lot of my paranormal claims this episode, but that's okay because that still does not discredit someone who actually saw a paranormal entity or had had a paranormal experience. And I hope my voice is sounding okay. I know it's starting to sound weaker and weaker as I go. It's definitely giving out on me, but I only have this day to record this episode, so I've got to keep on trekking. Today, a supposed picture of Nina hangs on the wall in the pizza joint, along with a brick at the bottom of the old elevator shaft with her name etched on it. And again, I'm not sure how the hotel or the pizza shack got a picture of her, but apparently the picture is supposedly Nina. Many sources say that after her death, Nina's young daughter also disappeared, and no one knows what happened to her. Not long after Nina's tragic death, people began reporting seeing her ghost wandering around the hotel. While today this is no longer a hotel, people who work in the building still claim to see Nina. Many think that she is still searching for her long-lost daughter, while some think that she is looking for her killers seeking revenge. Nina's ghost today is mostly seen in the old lobby, which is now Old Town Pizza Restaurant. Both staff members and patrons to the establishment have claimed to see Nina walking around the building, wearing a long 1900s-style dress. People have also reported the sudden, strong smell of flowery perfume. Others have heard a woman's voice coming from the basement. Sometimes this voice is low, like a soft whisper, and other times workers hear a shrill, panicked voice. Apparently, it sounds like a woman calling out to someone that she had lost. This is why many think that Nina is still looking for her daughter. Old Town Pizza has a lot of paranormal claims, more than just the ghost of Nina. Upstairs inside the restaurant, there are spooky claims of hearing the laughter of children. This normally happens during closing time. One night, a manager was about to lock up when she heard childlike laughter coming from the bar area. When she went to investigate, there was no one there. One day, a staff member was in the back room getting some supplies when he suddenly felt a tap on his shoulder. He turned around expecting to see another coworker, but he was in the room completely alone. 
Nina is not the only female ghost to be hanging around the lobby. People have seen an apparition of what is known as the woman in black. No one really knows who she is, but every time she is seen, she is dressed in early 1900s morning clothes with a long black veil that trails down to the floor. While her sudden appearance might be frightening to an unsuspecting staff member or customer, her demeanor is not often described as malicious. It's actually the opposite. She is described as a kind spirit who likes likes to play with children while they are waiting for their pizza. This woman in black is also known for moving things around, mainly objects like silverware, chairs, cups, and napkins. The sound of women's high heels walking around the shop during closing hours has also been reported, and many attribute this to her rather than the spirit of Nina. One time, a staff member watched a woman in all black walk into the basement. The worker approached her to let her know that this was for staff members only, and when he got close to her, he watched as she vanished into a fine mist. And this is not the only time that this has happened either. One day, a delivery man approached the pizza shop manager, visibly shaken. He told the manager that he was just bringing some boxes down to the basement like usual when he suddenly saw a woman in black literally float by him. He watched, frozen in fear, as she reached the staircase and disappeared in front of his eyes. He said that this woman also looked like she was made of smoke. He told the manager that he had just had the scare of his life. There is another ghost that likes to haunt the pizza shop, the resident lady in white. This ghost does not seem to have a name, but is more mischievous. It appears that she likes to scare guests by floating towards them really fast, only to disappear last second. Sometimes she has been seen near the basement steps and creepily motioning at people as if to say, let's go down to the basement because that's not creepy at all. There are portions of the old tunnel system that are still accessible today, but many businesses have since blocked off the access points. There are a few history tours that will take people down to portions of the tunnels that are still open. Some urban explorers found access points along the river and in abandoned buildings to sneak into the tunnels even when they don't have permission to do so. I had a surprisingly hard time to find ghost tours though. The few that I did find online did not offer too much information and they didn't mention where the access to the tunnels are. They mainly take place from what I gathered in basements or two that are connected to maybe two different buildings, but I had a hard time finding out the information when I was looking online. With that being said, all these different groups have reported some really strange activity down in the tunnels. According to legend, you can hear the echoing screams of anguish and mournful wails that reverberate down the tunnel walls. Many think that this is the residual sound of shanghaied men and kidnapped women who were screaming for help, yet tragically, no one came. The feeling of being watched and even followed closely from behind have also been reported. 
Apparently, these tunnels give off some strange energy, and people often get random goosebumps and feel sudden cold spots that seem to move around even following them. There is a ghost named Sam that has been seen many different times by a bunch of different people. Sam is described as a Chinese man in 1800-style clothing. He likes to walk down the tunnels, and he'll just walk right past you and pay you no mind. His ghost often is known for turning off lights in the basement that still have access to these tunnels. Workers would be down in the basements grabbing supplies or stocking the shelves for the night when suddenly the lights turn off. People often blame this on Sam. The reason people think that his name is Sam is because one day a ghost tour was walking down a stretch of tunnels when he and the tour group he was with suddenly heard a man's voice call out the name Sam and it echoed through the walls. Ever since, this ghost has been named Sam, and his ghost does not seem to be mean, though. Many believe that it was Sam's job to walk along the tunnels and turn the lights off every night in the basements, and he is just going about his work in the afterlife. Just because Sam is nice, don't expect the other ghosts to be. Many visitors to the tunnels have reported feeling different types of dark presences and multiple different entities known as trickster ghosts. These trickster ghosts are known to touch, push, and grab people while they are walking along. Some visitors have reported the feeling of the bottom of their shirts being tugged, while other ghosts have been known to grab people's shoes hard and tug on them, often making the person trip. Remember what I told you about the crimps taking men's shoes? Could this be the ghosts of Shanghaiers still searching for victims? Many paranormal investigators believe so. One night, a man was in the tunnels alone, and he was finishing up a tour. He was about to enter a basement access point to head home for the night, when he suddenly heard the sound of childlike whistling. He turned to see where it was coming from. When he looked up, he was suddenly thrown to the ground. He grabbed his flashlight and scrambled to his feet, ready to fight off his would-be attacker, only to discover that he was completely alone. There are other ghosts in the tunnel systems, too. People have reported apparitions of sailors, ladies of the night, mobsters, and even crimps walking around. When crimps are seen, they are said to have red glowing eyes, a sign of their eternal damnation for what they have done. Shadow figures darting in and out of basements that have access are also reported. One woman said that she felt a cold, wet hand grab her leg while on a tour. And then there is the legend of the Shanghai crew of the Jennifer Joe. According to legend, many Shanghai men were put aboard one sailing ship, the Jennifer Joe, and forced into slavery. The crew was only on board for a few days out at sea when the ship sank in a bad storm, and all were lost. Now it's said that on the anniversary of the ship sinking, if you go down to the water's edge near where the old tunnels used to end, you can see the group of men angrily searching for the men who had kidnapped them and brought them all to their deaths. There are a few paranormal shows that have been allowed to film inside sections of the tunnels, Ghost Adventures and Portals to Hell. 
they were allowed into small areas of the tunnels to do some investigations and both experienced some activity. Now, I'm not going to cover all of it here, but here are some of the highlights from the show Portals to Hell. Season 2, Episode 3, titled The Shanghai Tunnels. So when the show first started, Jack and Katrina split up to learn about two different areas of the tunnel systems. But first, they went to the Museum of the Shanghai Tunnels, which used to be run by Michael P. Jones. Sadly, Michael passed away in 2022, but he worked to excavate many areas of the tunnel system and opened a history museum. After they learned more about the tunnels and had a look at some artifacts, Jack went to the 6th Avenue tunnels and Katrina went to the Cooch Street tunnels. Both are small areas of interconnecting basements that have not been blocked off yet, and you can't get that far back into the actual tunnel system. Like I said, a lot of these tunnels are a little confusing because a lot of these have been caved in on purpose or completely walled off by, you know, owners who own the above shops. So the claims for the 6th Street Avenue tunnels are what I would consider traditional hauntings, a lot of knocking and tapping sounds, footsteps when rooms are empty, banging and seeing different types of apparitions from people in 18th century clothing. But when you enter the speakeasy section of the 6th Street tunnels, that's where things get interesting. People have reported that they hear something like a growling sound. And Jack and his whole crew actually heard this just when they were doing the initial history sweep of the location. Jack also said that he saw a woman peering at him from the darkness over to his left shoulder. So that was kind of creepy to watch. Um, his face was really freaked out. It was very interesting. The Cooch Street tunnels are a bit different. Supposedly, a large area underneath this section of businesses was a boxing ring. Illegal fight clubs were common in port towns along with gambling halls. In this space, people have claimed to see the ghost of the mysterious Billy Smith. Billy Smith was a famous Canadian boxer in the late 1800s. He was a Canadian-born, two-time world welterweight boxing champion. My God, that's a mouthful to say. Sorry, let me try that again. <laughs> he was a Canadian-born, two-time world welterweight boxing champion of the world. Try to say that five times fast. He won his first title when he was 21 years old in 1892, and he won his second in 1898. Why did people call him mysterious, you might ask? Well, it was said that he was famous for being the dirtiest fighter that ever lived. People never knew what he was going to do to get the upper hand. He also had a knack for biting people's ears, so he was the Mike Tyson before Mike Tyson. <laughs> He was known for stepping on opponents' feet, making them look down, and when they did, he would go for the ear. He got into trouble doing this during professional matches, but he was well known for loving to partake in underground fights in San Francisco and in Portland. San Francisco and Portland were his two favorite places to do underground fighting, and many believe that he had boxed at the Cooch Street Tunnels multiple times. Today, people claim to see his ghost wearing his entire boxing outfit. Well, more like not much because boxing outfits back then were pretty much little short shorts and some like shoes and that was kind of it. But anyway, when they see him in his boxing outfit, he's said to be standing in the middle of the room with his fists raised as if he's waiting for his opponent to stand in front of him. Then he vanishes. Another creepy claim is that people have felt like something is nibbling at their ears, which is really gross. That is definitely a new paranormal claim that I have not heard anywhere else. So it's very unique to this location and it's also very just ew. I just would just freak out if I felt that. 
Around the corner from the boxing area is a little room that the tour guide claimed was used as a crib room. A crib room is an old-fashioned name for a small room used for prostitution. This room would have been there for the male clients who were at the boxing match or there for the speakeasies when prohibition hit. I have no clue how she knows that this room was used for that, but it, sadly it wouldn't surprise me, but again, we don't have 100% confirmation. People often feel sadness in this room and get a very heavy feeling on their chest. The Lotus nightclub basement has a ghost of a former bartender who gives off what some would consider a malicious presence. It's believed that the club's basement stayed open as a speakeasy during Prohibition, and one of the bartenders never left. His ghost enjoys to play pranks on the staff members. One night, a worker was alone getting ready to lock up for the night, and he was bringing some stuff down to the basement when he suddenly heard the CO2 canister go off by itself in the bar area. The worker ran upstairs to find a single shot glass turned upside down in the middle of the bar. Employees and customers of the Lotus have also reported a few strange occurrences. One is a large group of angry men come bursting out of the basement. Their entrance is always aggressive and it makes people look up to see what's going on. This group apparition appears to be glowing and the men are in early 1900 style clothing. They look around the club angrily as if they are looking for someone before they vanish into a wisp of smoke. Many believe that this is a group of gangsters who are replaying a moment from their past. Whatever it is, it makes them angry enough to scowl around at the crowd before vanishing. This is not the only group that comes running up from the basement. On occasion, staff members and guests have reported a group of glowing men and women running up the basement steps in a panic. They're also dressed in early 1900s-style clothing, and they run through the club, right through the tables and chairs. While they don't seem to knock over any furniture, they do knock over the cups and silverware that are on top of the tables. They make a mad dash for the front door and vanish once they make it outside. Could this be residual energy from a police raid during Prohibition? Or is this group connected to the angry men who come running up the basement steps? These are secrets of the underground that we will never know, but it appears as though the ghosts who linger there do not want the living to forget their tragic stories of the horrors that they endured while inside the Shanghai tunnels. Thank you all so much for joining me for this first Halloween episode of my three-part Halloween series. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. Sorry that my voice was weak on this one, but I don't have any other choice than to get this recording out as quickly as possible because like I said in the beginning, I have so much going on this month that I did not have time to rest up and wait for my voice to get better. But I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun making this and just a reminder that I did not have time to talk about everything, including history and hauntings. So please go down to my show notes and check those out. Also links to my social media handles, my website, Patreon page, all that jazz all down below in the show notes. Thanks again to everyone for joining me for today's episode. I cannot wait to be back here real soon for our second one, which is going to be Leap Castle. I'm very excited to get back over on the other side of the pond to do another haunting over there. I had a lot of fun last year with Loftus Hall and the Hellfire Club over on my Patreon page, and I can't wait to check 
check out Leap Castle with you guys. Again, thank you all so much for your ongoing support of the show and thanks for listening. I hope you guys have a fantastic few weeks and I'll see you guys back here really soon on Historically Haunted. Happy Halloween, everyone.